I bring a message today entitled, The New Community, and it comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you would, would you turn there in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. As you may already know, the book of Ephesians holds a very special place in God's Word. It's, this is all God's Word, but God uses specific letters in, in practical ways to help us see how to live. When you look through history and church fathers and the book of Ephesians and the role that it played in their lives, for instance, John Calvin, it was his favorite book of the Bible. Uh, John Knox, he requested sermons from the book of Ephesians be, be read over him on his deathbed. So that was the very last thing he heard on this earth. Theologians have called it the crowning jewel of Paul's writings, the distilled essence of the Christian religion and the divinest composition of man. So those are some pretty lofty titles and compliments given to the book of Ephesians. One of my favorite living theologians is Sinclair Ferguson. He sums up the letter this way. From beginning to end, Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace, the privilege of belonging to the church, and the patterns of life transformation the gospel produces. Now, Paul, writing to a group of people he dearly loved, spent several years with them. The book of Ephesians can be broken down in basically two halves. The first half is Paul giving the indicatives, the beautiful truths behind the gospel and what changes us, celebrating that. In the first half of Ephesians, there's nothing uh, commanded for us to do other than remember these wonderful things. And then the second half of the letter takes a bit of a turn, and Paul includes the imperatives, the commands, the instructions on how we are to live out the gospel in every area of life. So even the layout of Ephesians teaches us something, that we first have to know Christ and what he has done for us before we try to go and start living what he's called us to live. We need to see what he has already done before we start embarking on what he's called us to do. And here in chapter 4, where we're going to begin this morning, actually begins that practical application. Because of the gospel, because of the good news, therefore, this is how the Christian should live. And the Christian is not meant to live on their own. The Christian is called into a community of other believers to live in unity, to equip the saints, the pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, this section of the letter talks about how we are to put off our old ways and put on the new ways that are in Christ and how we live out this life in community with other believers. So let's start with chapter 4, verse 25. We're going to read down through chapter 5, verse 2, and then we'll pray. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather as your saints. I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. And we thank you for your word that we get to eat of this morning. But Lord, we are quick to realize we cannot just do this on our own. This is not just an intellectual exercise. Lord, we need spirit and heart transformation. So Jesus, we ask you to be with us now. Holy Spirit, give us eyes and ears and hearts to comprehend and receive the truth of your word. As we rejoice in who you are, Jesus, and what you have done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I grew up in a small town in Georgia. Maybe you picked up on a little southern accent. I'm going to wager not much. When people ask me, I just tell them I'm from southern Minnesota. They don't buy it. Uh, but the little town I grew up in is much like the, the town I live in now in, in Chaska. Some of you uh, who came from Minnesota, you're kind of aware how small Chaska is. I love the community feel of a small town, uh, a way that you live out life with, with others in, in maybe a way that you can't do in larger areas or places where you, you don't know your neighbors. I got to see that one element of community lived out um, a year or two ago. Um, in my little town, I serve as one of four of the chaplains for our police department and sheriff's department. So one night, just as I'm getting ready to go to bed, I get this call late at night that a sheriff's deputy was in a really bad car accident, and they didn't know if he was going to live. So he was being air-flighted to the nearest hospital. So another chaplain and myself hop in the car, speed to the hospital. We're there with him and his family all night into the early morning hours. Now, chaplains are supposed to bring comfort and help and encouragement to people going through tragedy, particularly police officers, but also those who police officers are dealing with. And in that time, what struck me was, instead of the one giving the encouragement, I was being encouraged because I saw this community of law enforcement officers. I saw these, these sheriff's deputies and wives, and people hanging out at this hospital and loving on each other. Some believers, some not believers, but all of them living an aspect of community that was very convicting and very encouraging. Even the sheriff himself was there all night. He didn't leave um, when he had many things he could be doing, he realized that was important in that moment. And I thought to myself, man, if, if law enforcement get this aspect of community to serve each other in a desperate time of need, how much more should the church do this? Not just when tragedy strikes, but to live out life in a way that is encouraging to one another, that we're never going through anything alone. As Christians, we are called to live out life loving one another and serving one another in very real ways. That goes contradictory to our culture. But we're called to live out life together. In Minnesota, it's known as the uh, land of 10,000 lakes, and I, I tease that it's also the land of 5 million introverts. And so um, I don't know how Iowa stacks up to that, but uh, everybody kind of, they're very friendly, but everybody likes to kind of keep to themselves. Um, the gospel calls us to something beyond our personality. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, as believers, we're called to live lives of openness to one another, to welcoming others into our lives. 
And we can all agree that's a supernatural act. That's not something that comes naturally to, to most of us. So here's where scripture, I think, today is going to help us see that as a community of new believers, as a, a community of believers in a new place, as a community of seasoned believers who love one another, wherever your walk with Christ is, the command is the same. We are to live out life together. We are part of a new community in Christ, serving one another with grace-filled words, motives, and actions. I think that's one of the main things Paul is getting at in our text today. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So how we are affectionate, how we care for one another should matter. It's meant to reflect the life-changing power of the gospel in our lives. We're going to briefly look at this text this morning. Uh, there are five things that I'm seeing here that help us see how to live out these lives as a new community in Christ. We'll look at each one in turn. First, one of the ways we live out life in new community is to speak truthfully. So look again with me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, there's a connection here to an Old Testament scripture that Paul's alluding to in Zechariah when God is restoring Israel to himself, and there's preparation for that. In Zechariah 8.16, the prophet said, speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. The reason that's important is Israel's restoration back in the Old Testament was a picture of what Christ would accomplish on the cross for us, the restoration of the sinner, of God's people to himself through the blood of Christ. And so as people who have now been transformed, our lives are supposed to look different. The way we talk, the way we think is supposed to be different. And one of the things that Paul says is put away falsehood. We know that's a fancy word for lies. Put away lying. Only tell the truth. Now, we might be tempted at this point to say, you know what, Look, we can kind of move on. I'm not a liar, so I'm good there. But let's unpack that word falsehood because it doesn't just mean tell a blatant lie. Sometimes falsehood means exaggerating making something out to be different than it actually is, or inflating our accomplishments, or embellishing the details of a story that just make it a little more interesting. And in that moment, there's a root motivation in our hearts of pride, of wanting to please others, and wanting to make ourselves look better than we are. And that's rooted in wanting to be valued by others for the wrong reasons, or to value man's opinion too much. And that can tempt us to say things that are not true. Putting away falsehood also means flattery. Flattery is giving someone an empty compliment you really don't mean. And flattery usually has a motive behind it to say, I'm doing this because I want you to think better of me, or I want something from it. Now, we should compliment one another, right? But those compliments should be genuine to encourage each other. So we take off falsehood, take off lying, put on the truth. Now, we'll notice through this text, it's not just Paul saying, do this and don't do that. And I'm very thankful. Paul also puts behind it the reason, the motivation behind it. So as he says, put off falsehood, put on the truth, then we're given the reason, end of verse 25, for we are members of one another. Whatever your relationship is with your extended family, one of the things that I have in my family is people kind of tell the truth, sometimes to a fault. They tell you what they think whether you like it or not. And then we can say, well, we're all family. That's how we talk to one another. 
Well, there's an idea of that, but a, a good way in this text. Because we are family, we're members of one another, we're related in Christ, we tell the truth. That's what family does. That's the motivation here, to reflect the community, the family we're adopted into in Christ. We don't have to avoid talking about our own failures. We don't have to avoid helping somebody with their failures. We don't have to fear man. We don't have to pretend to be better than we are because as family, we should know one another. We should know nobody's perfect. Some people are deathly afraid to come to any church because they think they have to be perfect in order to be here until the gospel sheds a light and shows nobody but Jesus is perfect. And we're all broken, and we all need Jesus. And so as the family of God, we can be open with our brokenness and not be ashamed and say, I need help. I need Jesus too. And that allows us to speak truthfully. Secondly, as the new community of Christ, we're called to resolve our anger quickly. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here we have our second way we live out community according to this text. Resolve our anger quickly. This is also linked to an Old Testament scripture. Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So in both Psalm 4 and Ephesians 4, there is a distinction made between being angry and then acting in that sin. Now, there's a type of anger that is not sinful. Not all anger is sinful. The redeemed kind of anger is called uh, righteous indignation. That's when we're angry about what God is angry about, when we respond and react as God would, like when we hear how many babies are aborted in the womb. That should give us a righteous indignation. When we hear about Christians being persecuted or when we see the injustices done in our culture, there should be a righteous anger to that. But if I'm honest with you, the anger that I deal with most of the time is not the righteous kind. It's not that righteous indignation and being angry at the things that God's angry about. It's usually when my agenda is interrupted or somebody does something I don't like, or says something I don't appreciate, or my pride or my ego is hurt, or maybe my favorite, traffic. Those are where my anger usually shows up. And of course, a 1,500-mile road trip, my kids have had plenty of opportunity to say, Daddy, remember, don't struggle with traffic. That's kind of their code for me to help me. Don't struggle with traffic, Daddy. And I say, thank you, kids. Daddy needs Jesus. Pray for me. So God knows we need his help, but the anger we usually struggle with and the anger that this text is talking about is not the righteous kind. It's the selfish kind that we need to put away. So Paul says, let's put that away. But there's also a time limit because it's very rare that we get angry all by ourselves. There's usually somebody else in relationship that we get angry with, right? Siblings, spouses, other family members, neighbors maybe, maybe people in the church, so Paul says, look, you're going to be angry, but here's, here's something to remember. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's a time limit. Now, I've often heard this quoted with marriage. Husbands, wives don't go to bed angry. But Paul is dealing with every relationship in the church. It does, now, that doesn't mean you can be angry and bitter all day just as long as you apologize before the sun goes down. It's not what that means. Paul's saying, don't let our conflicts linger and go unresolved. 
in any relationship, unresolved anger is going to be a ticking time bomb for our souls. Unresolved anger turns to unforgiveness. Unforgiveness soon becomes resentment, and that poisons our hearts toward others. When you find yourself becoming overly suspicious of other people because of hurts from the past, when you find yourself not wanting to open up, assuming the worst about other people instead of loving and forbearing, that's a sign that there's been some resentment pushed down instead of it being dealt with. So Paul is saying to the church, if you have an offense against someone, particularly a brother or sister in Christ, first, take it to God. Let your own heart be dealt with. Don't just say, I need to get something off my chest and I'm going to call them right now. Always a bad idea. Go to God first. Let him deal with your heart. Let him show you where perhaps your sin is at play so that you can first get forgiveness. And then in a timely way, go to that other person in love and humility and reconcile with them. And verse 27 lays out the motive, the why behind it, that we would give no opportunity to the devil. That ramps up the stakes, doesn't it? This isn't just so, so that everybody can just get along and you can feel better. No, Paul's saying, resolve your anger, resolve your, your frustrations and your conflicts with one another quickly so that you give no opportunity to Satan. That's serious stuff. Because God knows, and he's teaching us, that the devil wants to bring division into the church and destruction into our relationships. If we don't deal with the issue in a timely way and we keep pressing it down, you and I both know it's just a matter of time before it comes out somewhere else. It explodes. It comes out against somebody who wasn't even part of the issue. We say hurtful things. We, we play those arguments in our minds. Well, I wish I had said this. Next time I see them, I'm going to say that, and I'm going to say, say this to them so they can see how it feels, and I just want to tell them and give them a piece of my mind. Notice all of those motives are opportunities for the devil because all of them are selfish. It's about me. It's about how I feel. But we're made in the image of God, and as Christians, we are bought with the blood of Christ, and we're welcomed into the new community of Christ. And that means we put others first, not ourselves. Now, later on in chapter 6, you're probably familiar with that, where Paul deals with the armor of God. And we teach our kids the armor of God. We even have little plastic replicas of the armor of God. Dealing with our anger in a timely way, that's a part of spiritual warfare. When you think about spiritual warfare, it's usually about our own hearts and our own minds. That's where the battle is fought when it comes to walking out community and dealing with offense. So the basic command here and the motive, the command, resolve your anger, deal with it in a Christ-like way, believe the best in one another, forgive and forbear. Don't be easily offended, but be easily edified. That closes the door to the devil, and it opens the door to peace and unity in the church. Amen? Third, work hard to give generously. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here we have the command. It's pretty straightforward. Christians should not be crooks unless you're related to me. 
And the person in the church who was once a thief must no longer steal. So this is one of the Ten Commandments. Nothing new, right? You shall not steal. Stealing, taking what's something that uh, doesn't belong to us, taking that from someone else. But like the other words, there's some other things meant in there. Like you could say, well, I'm not a thief. Well, it could also mean borrowing something and purposefully not returning it. It could mean stealing from your boss by not doing the best job you can. It could mean fudging on the numbers on your tax return. Stealing's not just taking what doesn't belong to us, but the Bible's pretty clear that it also means keeping back something that we should be giving, not giving to the needy, not being generous in giving to the work of the gospel, including the local church. God actually calls that robbery. And so the negative that we put off is brought along with a positive that we put on. So as we no longer steal, what do we put on? We put on honest work with our own hands, an honest living. And what's the motive behind that? It's not just that we can have more stuff. I had a chat with my son Noah, he's five, and he came to me the other day and he said, Dad, when I grow up, I'm stopping thinking, like, okay, he's going to say, I want to be a pastor. I'm like, okay, here we go. Dad, when I grow up, I want to be rich. I was thinking, okay, well, that's not going to be a pastor. And uh, I said, okay, well, son, let's, let's take a teaching moment. Why? Why do you want to be rich? And he looks at me as if the answer should be obvious to me. He's like, Dad, so I can have a house big enough for an elevator because I love elevators. Oh, well, okay. Um, and so we talked a little more. I said, well, you know, son, God can bless you. He can cause you to be wealthy, but it's not going to be so just you can have a big house with an elevator. God blesses us so that we can be generous and bless others. That's the motive Paul is giving us here in this text. We work hard to have means so that the one who works may have something to share with anyone in need. Yes, we work to provide for our families, but that's not the only reason. We work so that we can be generous givers, to be able to be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to our local church, and therefore honor God with all we have. We are all called to be generous givers, not because it comes natural to us. It's just the opposite. We're called to be generous givers because we have received such generosity from God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. That's what we're responding to with any act of generosity as believers, reflecting the generosity Christ has given us. And therefore, we can be generous with our time and our talents and our treasure. Fourth, we are called as God's new community in Christ to speak with grace, starting with verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Here we have another instruction about our speech. Just like we're supposed to be good stewards with our money in order to honor God, be good to others, do good to others, we're also to be good stewards of our words for the good of others. So the negative is no more corrupt talk coming out of our mouths. Now, Paul, in the original language, is using a phrase here that, that his original audience would know. He's talking about a diseased tree in this phrase. 
He's basically saying, if our hearts have been made alive in Christ, then our mouths are going to be sources of purity and life, not rottenness and death like a dying tree. Now, obvious examples for us would be dirty jokes, vulgar words, inappropriate references. Men and women can both be guilty of this. Because I am a man and hang around men, I know it can happen a lot with men. Men, it doesn't matter where we are, if it's just the guys hanging out or not, we're still representatives of Christ with our words. But it's also not just vulgarity. When it comes to a community of people, we know how quickly our words can corrupt and can do harm through things like gossip. Whether it's true or not, sharing things, sharing information with someone who is not part of the problem or the solution can bring harm. Things like slander, which is intentionally telling a lie about someone to hurt their reputation. Things like complaining. Even if you're just complaining about yourself, as a people who know that God is sovereign over all things, complaints are actually slander against God. God, you haven't done that good enough. You haven't done that as I would do it. But God gives us language as a gift for us to glorify him and to spread his good news and to encourage one another. And in this new community we are a part of as believers, our words are meant to minister grace to one another. The text says our words should be good for building up. That means to edify. That means to encourage as fits the occasion. That means saying the right thing at the right time. That means it gives grace to those who hear, bringing blessing to others, whether that's a compliment or whether it's a correction. Words of grace bring strength to our community and glorify God. A few years back, my grandfather passed away. He lived to the ripe old age of 95 and loved Jesus, was a great man, loved him and at his funeral, one of the things that hit me was all the different family members that were just sharing all these wonderful, kind things about him, and all of them true to my knowledge. But one of the things that hit me in that funeral was, I wonder how many of those things were said to him while he was alive. Beautiful funeral, beautiful life that he lived for Jesus. But I just wondered how many of those family members sat down with my grandfather and said, I just want to tell you how you've encouraged me and your character, and your walk with Christ. Maybe they did. I, I don't know. But it convicted me because I think to myself, whether it be funerals or just everyday life, how often do we withhold good words? How quick we are to say when we're not happy about something. But how often do we withhold the good that we need to be sharing with one another? So I'll just give you a friendly challenge. Even today, and maybe on a rainy day, you might be spending more time indoors and with other people, so you might have more opportunity. Find one person that has meant something to you in your life and tell them. It doesn't have to be a speech, but tell them with sincerity how they have impacted your life. And watch God use that moment to minister grace to them. Don't fall into the trap of saying, oh, they know I love them or they know what I think. Because most of the time we don't. Say it while we're alive. Say it to one another. Let grace be ministered through your words. And now verse 30, just in case we're feeling kind of piled upon of all these things we have to do differently, Paul helps us out here. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
So here we have a couple of things. First, we've had, we have the motivation for the previous verse for using our words to minister grace. Since the Holy Spirit is the one that unifies the church, when we speak with hurtful words that divide the church, we're grieving the Spirit of God. But this is also a connection to all the previous verses we've already seen that reminds us none of these commands can be lived out in our own strength. We must not leave here today, and I'm begging you, don't leave here today thinking, okay, I've got a list of 18 things I need to do differently. But that God would empower us, that he does empower us with the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And that means he has empowered you to do everything he has already commanded you to do. So nothing we're commanded to do by God is something we will lean on our own strength to accomplish. God fills us with the Spirit and causes us to depend on Him so that all these things that are commanded, we walk out and we reflect Christ because that's what the Spirit does in us. So let's just all admit, while we're family and we're being honest with each other, we're all going to fail. We're going to say things that we regret. We're going to cause hurt. There are going to be divisions in relationships. We're not always going to be as generous with our time or our money as we should be. We don't get condemned in those moments. We don't throw up our hands and say, I'll never get this right. But we say, Lord, here's one more reminder that I need you. Forgive me for where I have sinned and help me to walk this out in this new community of believers. And not just that one-on-one -on -one prayer with God, but you invite brothers and sisters in and say, I'm struggling in this area. Remind me of the gospel. Remind me of what scripture says. Hold me accountable while I'm dealing with this and encourage me to keep my eyes on Christ. The power of the Spirit helps us walk this out, and that brings us to our last one today. How do we live out this new community? We imitate God by reflecting Christ. Look at verse 31 again. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This is kind of a summary of what Paul's already said. So put away things like bitterness, that's the long-term unresolved anger. Put away wrath, that's the anger on the inside coming out. Put away clamor, that means brawling or verbal and physical violence. Those are things from the old life, not a Christian's life. Put away slander, which we've already seen is lying to tear down another. And put away malice, which is kind of the ill will toward another, the sinful motive under all of this. The bottom line, the implication is Jesus did none of that. None of that represents who he is, and none of that should represent who we are as his people. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness is underrated. Kindness, a fruit of the Spirit, is the opposite of malice. It's wanting the best for others and being ready to serve them to that end. Being tenderhearted means having compassion and empathizing with those who are hurting. All that we go through in life and our own hurts, the enemy wants us to harden our hearts, wants to circle the wagons, wants us to trust no one, wants us to be suspicious. But Christians should be just the opposite, tenderhearted, opening our hearts, ready to serve. Even when we get hurt, still ready to serve and care for others, which leads to forgiving one another the opposite of holding a grudge. Forgiving is giving the same grace God has given you to someone else. God freed us from the penalty that we deserve and put it on Christ. 
And so when we forgive, we're freeing others from our judgment and we're entrusting them to Christ. Now on that note with forgiving, maybe you thought of something right now where someone has hurt you and it could have been yesterday, it could have been years ago and you say, well, pastor, I just, I can't do that. That that hurt is too deep. I'm not ready to forgive. I don't think I ever can. Well, if that's you, know this, you, you can't forgive by yourself. You can't forgive in trying to muster up some reason to let that person off the hook other than by the help of God of what he would do in you to heal that wound and also to empower you with grace that is not your own but a gift from God that you could give to another to release them to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the only place in the whole Bible where we are explicitly told to imitate God. Thankfully, all that came before that leads up to it. We're not just left with, how do we do that? And that's a tall order because we're called, right after that, we're called God's beloved children. So there's a connection. Imitate God because you are God's beloved children. I can't tell my children to do something if I do the opposite. Yes, while they're small, I can make them obey my words. But eventually, they're going to do what they see me do. Whatever I've said, that's going to be secondary to what they've seen in my life. Thankfully, with our Heavenly Father, His words and His actions always align. He's perfect in word and deed. So when we look to Him, we become more like Him. We become more like our Father. And that's done through and by Jesus. He is the motivation and He is the means of that. Because Christ loved us, we can walk in love for one another. Because Christ gave himself for us, we can give ourselves and serve one another. Because Jesus' death was a fragrant offering to God, as we're told in this verse, that means his sacrifice on the cross was accepted, and it's enough, and it will cover every fault and every sin. Because of that, we don't have to hide our faults and pretend to be perfect but we can be open and honest and say, Lord, I need your help. I close with this quote from Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Ephesians. Concerning these verses, he says this, Christ's handing himself over to death for his people was the supreme demonstration of his love for them. Because he is both the ground and model of their love, costly sacrificial love is to be the distinguishing mark of their lives. By God's grace, that's what he is doing in you as believers. That's what he's doing in you as a church. He's putting his distinguishing mark of sacrificial love on you. Whether you've lived for the Lord for years or you're brand new as a disciple of Jesus, God is marking you with his love that he's given you, that you would show that to one another. That the way you lived your lives before would look completely different than how you're living your life now. So that you can be a blessing to one another as his new community. And so that you could be a light and an example to all the people in your life who don't yet know Christ. 
that they would want to be part of his new community. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.